This episode of Reading Trek is brought to you by our patrons. You can support this vibrant fan-based podcast network by visiting patreon.com slash the tricorder transmissions. For as little as $1 a month, Patreons gain exclusive early access to some of our unedited shows, interviews, and even get to join in on exclusive Patreon-only chats. We have lots more Patreon content on the way that you don't want to miss, so visit patreon.com slash the tricorder transmissions. Be sure to mention that Reading Trek sent you. Put down the remote, set your phaser to stun, and pick up that paperback. You do have books in the 24th century. Welcome to Episode 7 of Reading Trek, a Star Trek book club podcast and proud member of the Tricorder Transmissions Podcast Network. My name is Marty Lee, and I'm joined, as always, by my wonderful co-host, William Conlon. How are you doing today, Will? I am doing great, because I am here with you and another great friend, and I'm so excited to be talking about the autobiography. So, Marty, why don't you introduce our other guest for the night? Today we are joined by our good friend from Star Trek Las Vegas, Mr. Tyler Habiger. How are you doing today, Tyler? Well, I got a little confused when William said we were joined by another good friend of ours, so I was wondering who he was talking about. <laughs> You're like, I only see two faces up there. <laughs> oh, it's very good to be with you. Thank you very much for having me. Our pleasure. Yeah, it's great to have you on here, and I don't think there's a better person to be talking about the autobiography of James T. Kirk, because uh, I think you are one of the uh, top Kirk cosplayers at STLV, and this is certainly your wheelhouse, so no better person to have on. It's a good character study, I would say. Yeah, why don't you give our listeners a little uh, insight into what you normally cosplay when you're at STLV? Well, I've I've found with, as this will be my third time going to Las Vegas this coming August of 2018, and I found that most of the outfits worn by the character of James T. Kirk fit me, my body shape, and my and my my facial features more effectively than any other cosplay that I do. So I typically do one of my favorites is the green uh, wraparound that Captain Kirk has. I also do the Generations Kirk vested look. I am working on a monster, a full jacket, that I intend to debut in um, Las Vegas this coming August, as well as a mirror Kirk. And I will continue to build on Captain Kirk as I continue to go back. So Kirk has always fit me very well. I've been given some very nice compliments that I do Kirk very well. So when my good friends, Marty and William, asked me to be the guest star for the autobiography of James T. Kirk. It seemed like a natural fit. And I have to say, reading this book gave me some very interesting insights into the captain that's really defined the franchise for the last 25 years, but is also sort of echoed through the franchise for the last 53 years. So very, very happy to be a part of this. Excellent. And and I'm looking forward to this year's Kirk cosplay with you because I am going to be doing uh, Commodore Decker from uh, the Doomsday Machine. And uh, I, I think there's no better uh, uh, duality than your calm, cool, collected Kirk and my psychotic, crazy eyes Decker. So you can't shave for a few days beforehand as well. Exactly. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to really have to work on my screaming mouth. <laughs> That's right. No, but exactly like you're saying, the tagline of this book kind of says it all. The story of Starfleet's greatest captain. And something that I've really, something that a lot of reviewers have picked, on, picked up on about this book is that it is refreshingly accessible. 
And that, uh, exa- for example, Kirkus Reviews said that readers won't need any knowledge of Star Trek in order to enjoy the overall tale. In fact, this book could just as easily serve as a primer to the entire franchise. And in, in a lot of ways, they're right, because this book is so approachable. And it, it portrays Captain Kirk as perhaps the most human of the entire of the trio of Kirk, Spock, and McCoy, because he's endured quite a lot through his life, which we really don't get to see a whole lot of, because when you think about it, the original series has maybe a hundred hours of screen time together, versus when you have the 78 episodes, the animated series, plus six feature films and a guest starring appearance by Captain Kirk in Star Trek Generations, that's really not a whole lot of time to get to know the characters because you're writing for seven, eight main characters and the guest stars and the plots for each, each episode. So you don't really get to delve into the, the meat and potatoes of each character, even, even the main characters of Kirk, Spock, and McCoy. So we are fortunate to have such a good writer like David Goodman to really flesh out the character of Captain Kirk and do it in such a, an honorable way that respects canon and gives the fans little nuggets of what really defines Captain Kirk. Why was he so cut off from his crew? Why did he have to appear so cold and, and icy towards so many of them? But And never really finding that love except for the USS Enterprise. So Kirk is often a misunderstood character, I feel, in Star Trek mythos because you have that age-old debate of Kirk versus Picard, and if you ask me, and I again, I am a little biased because I do cosplay Captain Kirk at the conventions, but Kirk, I believe, is the best Starfleet captain because, not simply because he defined what it means to be a Starship captain, but also there was no figure before him to set the tone. It's, it, it was clear to me that James T. Kirk is a deeply human individual, and he devoted his life and his career to a phrase that I, I tend to take from, um, I tend to take after from Peter Morgan's The Queen of duty first, self second. And you see that really pop up in this book, especially in the first few chapters when you're talking about the development of James Kirk and how he became the the starship captain, the greatest starship captain who ever lived, according to um, Mr. Spock and Dr. McCoy in the foreword and afterward. As uh, I believe Dr. McCoy said, he is the greatest hero who ever lived. And that's a lot of high praise coming from an old country doctor. But this is a, a really nice way to get to know Kirk that you just don't get to see in the television episodes in the films. Well, well said. That is exactly why we uh, wanted you on here this week. So uh, before we get into the full-on discussion of this, Marty, why don't you uh, uh, introduce our uh, new viewers to the podcast? For those who are new to the podcast, we are a Star Trek book club podcast working our way through the Star Trek Expanded Universe one novel at a time, discussing the characters, plot, writing, and piece it together to the larger Trek universe as we pull out the meanings, the messages of the text. Although we do encourage you to read along with us, the show was designed to give all Trek fans a way to journey through the EU together, even if you haven't read the books. Whether you're reading along with us, revisiting an old favorite, or if you just want to know more about the EU, this is a podcast for all Trek fans. 
Before we dive into this week's novel, we want to take a moment and talk about our voicemail contest. Reading Trek is holding a contest, and you can enter to win a brand new hardbound copy of the autobiography of Jean-Luc Picard by David A. Goodman. To enter, all you have to do is call our voicemail at 609-512-5527 and leave us up to a two-minute message with your thoughts on the show or something we've been reading. Alright, we're going to turn the page on this novel, but before we do, Black Alert, this is your spoiler warning for the autobiography of James T. Kirk. Black Alert. Black Alert. Alright, so uh, this week we are going to handle things a little different. We're not going to do a straight-up summary like we normally do. We're going to actually go chapter by chapter, because that's very much how this book is structured. So, uh, Marty, why don't you give us the summary for chapter one? Chapter one, Kirk's mom leaves for Tarsus 4, while Kirk recounts his parents' meeting and his birth. Kirk rescues a Tellarite ambassador from a crash shuttle and is sent to Tarsus War to live with his mother. Yeah, um, I thought it was an interesting um, choice to start the book. Uh, obviously, in a traditional autobiography, you want to start with the early days. I want to also mention that there is a brief prologue that um, mentions the city on the edge of forever, which we're going to get to a little bit later. But in Chapter 1, um, yeah, I thought it was... Um, I thought it was a, it was a great startup, and I, I think the first few chapters are where we get the real meat and potatoes of this book because it's the stuff that we haven't necessarily seen on screen in the shows or the movies. So uh, the author has a little more freedom to uh, expand while being true to all of the tidbits that we learn about Kirk throughout the uh, series and movies. How did you feel about it, Tyler? Well, something that I really picked up on during the first chapter was Kirk's relationship with his mother and his relationship with his father and how that really had a lot of ripple effects throughout Kirk's life. Kirk was only alive, for those of you that don't, that are more casual fans than some of us, Kirk was only alive for 60 years. When he, when he was presumed missing in action on the Enterprise B, he was only 60 years old. So he had lived a incredibly full life for just six decades in our galaxy and you definitely had a lasting effect from the mother and the father um throughout kirk's life and especially when you have um when you have lines such as if his career had continued talking about kirk's father he might have been one of the youngest captains in the history of starfleet but his personal life led him in a different direction his whole family was full of Starfleet alums, so it's not hard to imagine that Kirk would eventually go into Starfleet, especially with his maternal grandfather being an engineer, his grandmother a physician, and their daughter and his mother attended the academy and then decided to go be an astrobiologist. So it's sort of runs in the family that he would want to be in Starfleet and, and go on and do bigger and better things. And he, he also goes along and... and and has some really insightful lines such as, I have told many people that my father leaving Starfleet inspired my own career to complete the career he didn't get to finish. Though that is partially true, the rest of the story is a lot more complicated. So while that is not the entire reason why Kirk entered Starfleet, that is a great foundation for why he would want to go off and have the career that he had, because his father was started a career in Starfleet, but then he took a different path in order to raise a family with his wife and raise Kirk and raise Sam. So there's a lot of family foundation here in Kirk's life. Yeah, truly. How about you, Marty? What did you take out of chapter one? I like that that Kirk was, was born on the Kelvin, just like in the Kelvin timeline. 
Um, I kind of was got excited at that part because I was wondering if like it was gonna kind of play the same way, but then a little bit differently. But it was it was a lot different. So, but I thought that was nice to tie that back into um, 2009 since that's that was the moment where the universe kind of split. But yeah, I I liked I liked the relationship Kirk had with with his brother Sam kind of just the playful younger brother wanting his approval as well mm-hmm. yeah 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 i mean it was a good good start to the novel how about you will yeah i agree with the um the tie into the 2009 trek i love that they mentioned uh captain rabau so you had a a direct reference to that and um i was especially touched by the moment in chapter 1 when um uh, young Jim goes in and talks to Sam after his mom has left for Tarsus Four. I thought that that was that was a great relationship scene because um, if they talk about the kind of cold relationship that they have up to that point, and that's when it turns around, and they then they are loving brothers. So I thought that was really yeah. great. There's also quite a bit of detail about um, his interaction with the Telluride ambassador and the, yes. the flaming shuttle full of death. And the way that Kirk had never experienced anything like that, he had. Uh, they had. The author talks about uh, campfires and and singalongs and and raising crops and so forth. Nothing to do with the outside world, which is so atypical for James T. Kirk when you think about it. But when this shuttle crashes and this ambassador is sort of very rude and forward and get me out of here, it's it's. It sort of rocks Kirk's world, and when the Starfleet crew show up, you see these basically these big men in shining armor, and the last the last line of the section being, "Thanks," Kirk said, and he couldn't hold back his smile that he had done something that was bigger than Riverside, Iowa. So you can definitely see the seeds being planted for a Starfleet career. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely think that scene had a lot to do with his further career down the line that it showed him that he could do these amazing like he could be a hero he could he could be in charge of people and all that stuff and i love the way that the chapter ended as well i thought that was great that you know when he takes off for um tarsus four and we meet um the Leightons who you know relate back to conscious of the king and tos uh but i love that as they are flying out of earth orbit they pass um the uh, superstructure of the dry dock, as it says, and uh, Tom Layton says, Dad, what ship is that? And he says, one of the new Constitution-class ships. Uh, And, you know, they don't say what the name of the ship is, but we all know what ship that is being built. We certainly do. Um, But that's a perfect segue if uh, we want to move on to Chapter 2. Kirk travels to Tarsus IV to live with his mother. He and his new friend Tom Layton witness the execution of innocent civilians at the hand of Governor Kodos. Will, I feel like we've been here before. Yeah, this this reminds me of episode uh, three, doesn't it? And and what was the governor's yeah. name? What what was his first name again? Oh man, that that's the only thing that takes me out of a book is when there's a major major continuity thing. I am not a canonista, and I never have been. But uh, his name is Adrian Kodos. It is in TOS. It is in. Um, Desperate Hours, but in this book, what are they, what is it, like Adam Kodos or something? Arthur Kodos? It was not Adrian. Yeah, so that that pulled me out of it right away. That was a, a little continuity error that I didn't like, but um, otherwise I, I thought they did a pretty decent job of um, telling the Kodos story. The big, yeah, the big, um, the big note that I have on Chapter 2 is execution. 
it's it sort of amazes me in, in the notes that I took on this chapter. It's amazing that Kirk lived to have the, the mental fortitude that he had in his later years with the witnessing of the thousands of colonists that were basically disintegrated before his very eyes and that he had the fortitude to carry on afterwards and live a norm, fairly normal life afterwards. But something else I'd like to point out about this chapter is the um, abnormal amount of enterprise references. You can tell that this author is definitely an enterprise fan, as well we know. He, he wasn't just were, an enterprise fan. He uh, was a he writer wrote. on enterprise. That's right. And he was a consulting producer and on uh, enterprise as well for about 44 episodes. So you can definitely tell this, this gentleman knows his stuff as I count two to three Enterprise references in this chapter alone. Yes, and this actually ties back to something that we talked to uh, Dayton Ward about, uh, because in, um, I want to say it's uh, in a mirror darkly when they're looking at um, service records of various people on um, from the uh, Defiant computer when Mirror Archer and Hoshi are looking at that they like look up their records and I guess there's a deleted scene where Hoshi looks up her record and it says on her record that she was killed on Tarsus 4 uh, so uh, Dayton decided not to include that in the uh, book um, um, uh, Drastic Measures uh, because he didn't feel that that was officially canon so he didn't want to get into that but this book chooses to actually do that so it kind of shows you the, the perils of the expanded universe but um, also the uh, the freedom of choice of the author. It also goes to show that uh, the author does take a little liberty with how society has progressed as far as into the 23rd and 24th century. Uh, there's a reference on, on page 29, actually, where Kirk talks about his mother indulging in the ancient tradition of putting photographs on the wall, which that's, that's very interesting to me that we have evolved beyond the point of putting photographs on the wall in the 23rd century. So, and I also caught the uh, Star Trek five reference. Um, Mom was an avid rock climber. So yes. I, I, we can see where Kirk gets his rock climbing tendencies. One of the few references to Star Trek five in this book. <laughs> exactly. It's funny because I was just uh, two days ago, I was talking to a, a gentleman who was one of the uh, bit players in um, the city of galactic peace in Star Trek V. And I was saying, hey, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a fan of Star Trek V. And he says, oh, my God, I finally found one. Oh, oh, goodness gracious. Yikes. Poor, poor Star Trek V. Poor Star Trek Five. They they got what they deserved. Oh no. Uh, oh, so, so so before this goes into an all-out uh, podcast brawl, Marty, tell us what your thoughts on Chapter Two. Well, like you said, there's there's that big contradiction in the events on Tarsus Four, um, but I think we only notice it because we're fresh from Drastic Measures. Mm -hmm. I also like the reference to the sweet spot. Yes. Oh, yeah. That's, that's always been one of my favorite parts about uh, Broken Bow. Yeah. I also appreciated how this chapter concluded with an, a, a brief introduction to Captain Robert April. And while you don't really see a whole lot of Captain April or know a whole lot about him as far as the canon Star Trek goes with just a brief appearance in the animated series... You can tell that David Goodman sort of takes the liberty to say that Captain April had a lot more inspiration on Kirk than anyone would have thought possible with him 
beaming down to the planet and sort of trying to save the day and sort of these men in shining armor that Kirk sees, you know, in at his boyhood in Iowa and now on this planet as well in the uh, in the black of space that he sees something bigger than himself and he can see that he is starting to want to become a part of this and be something bigger than James Kirk of Iowa. Mm-hmm. I also like the moments where um, Kirk is kind of cold to his mother just kind of just like, hey, I'm excited to see you. But then he like gets there and he's just like, oh, right. You're the woman who left me. And I see that as a very much a commonality throughout Kirk's life. And I'll, and I'll touch more on this as we get deeper into the book. But it seems like Kirk has a string of people in his life throughout most of his life that have a tendency to leave or are injured or are killed, whether it's crew members, family or lovers. They always have a tendency to leave, but there's only one common denominator throughout all of Kirk's life, and we'll get into that as we get close, deeper into the book. Yeah. All right, I think that takes us into Chapter 3. Kirk attends Starfleet Academy, gets hazed, falls in love for the first time, and beats the Kobayashi Maru. I love how this chapter begins with a reference to our friend Admiral Reed, an old British commandant of the Academy. Yet again, keeping yeah. keeping with Enterprise. Sticking to your roots. Mm-hmm. That's got to make Dominic Keating a little happy to know that his character lived long, lived long and prospered after Enterprise ended. Well, seriously, because uh, doing just the rough math on that, that would make him probably, what, in his uh, mid-90s? 90s. Yeah. That's that's great. You also get, there's a very, there's a very good telling... Um, uh, phrase from Kirk in this section as well, where he says on page 42, I'd been hardened by the events on Tarsus and couldn't trust my parents or any adults to look after me anymore. I had been on my own. I was looking for some way to exert control over a world that could be cruel and merciless. Seeing how that starship captain and his crew had almost single-handedly restored civilization by their mere presence had made a strong impression. I wanted to be a part of that. Or maybe I needed to. So I focused on getting accepted into Starfleet Academy. So you can definitely tell that James Tiberius Kirk is is very much influenced by these folks, and he's ready he's ready to become a part of this unique family of of gold and blue shirts by that point. Which I, yes, we're in cage uniform era, so we're gold and blue. Yes, and um, one of the things that that really started to get with me in this chapter um, was I had to start, you know kind of going through the chapters and following with um, Memory Alpha because we started to really get into the deep cut references to TOS. And, you know, I've been a Trek fan my entire life, but I, I'm not, you know, I haven't seen every episode a million times. So I had to start going, you know, that name sounds a little familiar. So, I, oh, okay. So we had Finnegan. I needed to look up, oh, that's right. So he was in Shore Leave. And then we have Finney and I have to look up, oh, that's right. He was in Court Martial. So this is where it, you know, it starts to really test the um, the details of a Trek fan. And the even a more inner detail with Ruth being one of his, actually, if, if not his first love in this book. And she had only appeared in maybe four or five minutes of the episode Shore Leaf, and she is definitely given the opportunity to flesh out more as a character in this book. So kudos to our friends at Memory Alpha and David Goodman for keeping track of all this information. Yeah, and we also get an, our introduction to Gary Mitchell, uh, who you know is a critical character in one of the first episodes of TOS. We also start to get some nice um, 
Next Generation references in this chapter as well. Such as? Well, I, for one, when I was in intermediate school, I started reading some of the Next Generation novels that were somehow in our library in southwest Missouri. But I started getting the references to the plebes, which are first mentioned in a Next Generation novel about Geordie LaForge, which the um, the actual uh, name of that escapes me. But we also get um, Zero-G combat training, which is um, referenced in, of course, and featured in Star Trek First Contact. And you also get the, um, the Starburst maneuver, um, which is referenced in the Next Generation episode, The First Duty, which I thought was an excellent way to incorporate um, the original series and The Next Generation together, which they had not attempted that move for many, many years. And sure enough, it was James T. Kirk's squadron that had attempted it last. Nice. Yeah, I, I kept uh, I kept thinking uh, as I was reading through that section, shut up, Wesley. Right, exactly. And of course, uh, not Tom Paris. Of course not. Oh, of course not. Yeah, because, uh, you know, they... I, can't, I think That's they kind of check. They kind of retconned that into being Tom Paris by putting that, the photo of him from that episode on Admiral Paris's desk. But uh, continuity, we need our little Marty. We're going to come up with a sound eventually. Yeah, there is actually a, a sort of a, a smaller, more hidden reference in this chapter that I would like to talk about, and that's going along with the age-old debate between Kirk and Picard. And given my my passion and study of American history, and particularly the American presidents, there is actually a, a section on page 49 of this chapter that um, really struck me about Kirk's studies in the academy, um, which it begins with, for the next two months, we were put through a punishing regime of physical training, running with heavy packs, obstacle courses, battle simulations, survival training, the skills I developed in my boyhood considered primitive and unnecessary in our society came in handy during this period. My mountain climbing experience, my years camping with my father, and my knowledge of the Old West. Still, it was never easy, and there were always surprises. What really struck me about this, and I likened it to a quote, uh, sort of an indirect quote from John Adams, where he was writing in a letter, I believe, that I learned warfare and tactics in school so that my children could learn art and mathematics and literature so that they wouldn't have to learn how to fight wars and so forth. And you, you get into where Kirk definitely was of a different caliber and a horse of a different color than Jean-Luc Picard, because Jean-Luc Picard was trained more so in diplomacy and art and mathematics and literature, whereas Kirk was trained in, arm, in tactics and, and battle training and so forth. So there was, it was definitely two different eras of Star Trek when you think about it, but not saying that one is more so better than the other but it's just it's it's trying to compare apples and oranges when you try to compare those two captains well said you also get in this chapter you get a lot of the finney relationship that um comes really comes to terms in court martial and you get a lot of the the hazing and the bullying that finney got out of kirk and that power that finney had over his bully victim which uh, too many, too many of us can say we've had experience with, unfortunately. Yeah, I thought I thought the uh, the writer must have had a really, really deep impact by the episode Court Martial because um, Finney is 
a massive character in this in this book, which by virtue makes him a massive character in Kirk's life, and, and that's something when you think uh, of what a you know minor character he is on TOS. You know, I'm glad that I wasn't super familiar with the original series reading this book. Like, I'd watched it through, but I've only watched it through once, so a lot of it's a little hazy. But I didn't look anything up on Memory Alpha like you did, so I was really glad I didn't, because then, you know, down the line, when these characters kind of resurface and do important things during the time span of the original series, it was kind of just like, oh, like it was like a mind explosion kind of thing, you know? Nice. So it really made me enjoy the book a lot more, having not been familiar with those like being only kind of familiar with the original series you know well yeah and and court martial was certainly an episode i wasn't familiar with um so i actually went back and watched that episode since starting the book because i wanted to see if you know it felt like finney was that you know important of a um character in Kirk's life and, and I just thought it was intriguing how how deep of an effect um, he has because he reverberates throughout this book all the way to the end and we'll talk more about that in uh, next week's episode but um, I, I just thought it was really interesting and, and actually one of the things that not to um, you know sidebar too long but one of the things I found really interesting about the episode of Court Martial is the relationship between the episode Court Martial and the TNG episode Measure of a Man because uh, both are courtroom themed episodes and one is basically arguing against uh, computer rights and the other is arguing for computer rights. So I just thought there was a, an interesting um, connection between the two. No, I had never thought of it that way. And court martials actually, <laughs> we, we were raised on Trek differently, I believe, because I was brought up on the original series. So court martial is one of my favorite episodes. And as I was reading this, I could definitely tell, um, I could definitely understand Finney's motivations a lot more um, because... You see this relationship forming between them in the academy, and then when you get to court martial, you see the sort of broken Finney, and you sort of you sort of go, "Oh, I get it. I understand now why this is the way it is." And especially in the next couple of chapters, you you really understand why things were the way they were with with Kirk and Finney. Um, something that I would like to talk about as well is uh, the introduction of um, Instructor Gill, of Professor Gill. And their discussion of Khan in this in this chapter. Yes. Yes. And also the uh, brief reference to the McFarland Prize that Professor Gill won. Mm-hmm. I didn't catch that one, but that's really awesome. A nice little nod to his to the the author's uh, good friend Seth McFarland, since they are writing buddies together on American Dad and and Family Guy. But well, and and David A. Goodman is an executive producer on Family Guy, and now. Um, I believe writes for the Orville. So, yes, yes. And if we, and if we need any other confirmation that David Goodman is an excellent writer, he's actually the president of the Writers Guild of America. So, kudos to kudos to David. Oh, wow. Well done. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I don't think I, I don't think it is by any means an easy task to capture a voice that people know so well. So the way that he is encapsulated, you know, one of the great icons of 20th century pop culture in this book is is really stunning. But uh, the discussion that they have that Professor Gill and and uh, Jim Kirk have about Khan is 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 very interesting to me because. Uh, Kirk takes the position that he admires Khan, and Professor Gill is 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 outraged. Like, how can you say that about Khan Noonien Singh and 
And uh, Kirk likens it to like the railroad of the American West. It was an amazing engineering piece and technological masterpiece and led to prosperity. It, it could only be constructed using slave labor. But its importance led, and its importance, of course, it led to capitalists leading to the near genocide of the Native Americans. But I still admire the creation and what it took to get there. And the professor goes, well, perhaps, perhaps you shouldn't, because it sounds like the ends didn't justify the means. And that definitely comes to a horrifying twist of fate during the five-year mission when they approach the Nazi planet. Mm-hmm. And right after that, they have a very nice Enterprise reference as well, referring to the Zindi incident in the class. So. Yes, I was just going to bring that up. And I think that's something that's that's interesting uh, about um, books that pertain to time before TOS and the Kelvin timeline that, you know, that really is the, the, the Enterprise era is the only thing that they have to work off of. The Enterprise era and the movie First Contact, uh, if you're doing something that starts in that time frame, it's really all that you can reference. So I love when they choose to add those references in. And sometimes they can be super subtle, just like um, in uh, Star Trek Into Darkness when um, Scotty and Kirk are, uh, are talking about the... Um, uh, trans, the trans warp, um, beaming device, I think. And, um, in the background, you see the big, the big ship where they signed the Federation charter on. Mm, that's right. That's right. The conversation that happens afterwards between Kirk and Finney is also very telling. There's, there's, there's a, there's a quote from Kirk that says, um, looking back, I can see now that Ben's desire to not only be my friend, but everybody's undermined his own ability to command respect as a senior officer. So Kirk, even as a young cadet, knew then and there that Finney could never be truly counted on as a senior officer. So he already had that embedded in his mind by that point. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and let's talk a little bit about towards the end of the chapter, we have uh, this introduction of Kirk to Koloff, which I thought was uh, an interesting uh, choice to put in there. Captain Koloff, my dear Captain Koloff, from the uh, trouble from the trouble with Tribbles, I believe. Is that right? Uh, yeah, yeah. That's right. That's right. And uh, Koloff aside, it's a very fascinating point to make about. Um, about the Klingons, because you definitely see uh, an immediate distrust of the Klingons by Kirk, and that starts very early in his life. Mm-hmm. And it's talking about uh, the Axanars, and that a million Axanars had lived in this city, and they spent a lifetime under relentless rule of the Klingon Empire. And they were slaves, and they had no rights, and this is, these are all things that had been outlawed on Earth for centuries. So this could this didn't even compute to Kirk that this is oh this is just how it is. He immediately knows that this is not right and he automatically distrusts these people because of it. Yeah, I thought I thought their meeting I almost likened it to an early scene in um the Bond films, you know, when Bond always has the uh like the amicable meeting with the villain and you know things are going to go down much later. I also enjoyed the uh the reference to the prefix code in this little section as well. I like the Kobayashi Maru. <laughs> I actually had a moment that I wrote LOL on the margin. I underlined bull in that section, so there so there you go. But Tyler, we don't curse on the tricorder oh, transmission. Oh no no no. I will I will definitely be um, putting a photon torpedo over that. 
But that is what I what I pointed out. Um, I love the description of it too. The test placed the cadet in command of a starship that received a distress call for a fuel ship, the Kobayashi Maru, which was in the neutral zone bordering the Klingon Empire. The cadet had to decide whether to try to rescue the ship, violating the treaty, and risking interplanetary war. If the cadet chose this route, his her ship was destroyed by the Klingons. It was considered an important test of command character. I thought the test was BS. The the one thing that disappointed me about this section in the references, I was really hoping that he would he would make a reference to eating an apple while he did it the the last time. Right. Just like he did in uh, Star Trek 09. Exactly. I think that's something that would have related whether it was Kelvin timeline or not. He would have definitely been eating an apple. But they did. I thought they did sort of keep the faith with Star Trek 09 with the aftermath of it, with the outraged admirals. Yeah, that's what I love so much about it. Is it? It was kind of it. It parallels both both the original series and Star Trek 09. It kind of makes you feel like those universes are more connected than they are. And I felt this, and I felt the Prime Kirk was a little more articulate than the uh, Kelvin timeline Kirk. No offense to to anyone that had anything to do with the writing of that Kirk, but it just seems like this Kirk is a little more studied and well read. And um, well, well, Prime Kirk had his dad and. Calvin Kirk did not. So. That's right. In fact, if I just let the test run its course a third time without trying to adjust its programming, I would have been found guilty of negligence. And I would not have done everything in my power to save the crew. And you would have to expel me on that basis. Yeah, great way to turn it around. All right, let's move into Chapter 4. Kirk reports for duty on the 20-year-old USS Republic, making milk runs to star bases and planets. He meets Scotty and betrays his best friend by reporting a serious error. His actions get him transferred to a Constitution-class ship, where, while docked for repair, he meets Carol Marcus and has a son. He then assumes command of the Hotspur after an attack by pirates and is now a captain. There's a lot to talk about in Chapter 4. I think we should start with the Republic and how... Most of the officers have to live in spaces they cut out, like under stairways and in supply closets and all that stuff. Can you imagine serving on a starship where you have to live like Harry Potter under the stairs? I'd imagine many of our men in uniform in the Army, Navy, and Air Force, I imagine they would experience something like this in these difficult conditions. But it's hard to imagine that in the 23rd century of all places and times. Well, yeah, because, you know, Star, Star Trek is so much of a, um, um, what is the the term? It's a, a post-need universe where there's replicators and things that can basically make the... Um, uh, the necessary adjustments. So you don't see often a lot of like dirty, um, you know, dirtiness, you know, lack of cleanliness. Uh, I think there's a line even in the pilot of discovery where they talk about, um, Starfleet's impeccable cleanliness as far as it, its equipment goes when the, when they're repairing the, the relay beacon before the Klingon attack. So, um, this almost conjures up more of a star Wars, uh, you know, grungy universe. Yeah. Grunge, grunge future. Yeah, so so I think this kind of relates. I think the the, the author actually uh, tied in to an early reference talking about the Constitution class ships uh, being able to self sustain and not require support ships. So um, you know this gives you a side of Starfleet that you've never really seen before: the support ships that have to make the milk runs, delivering things for the big clean ships. I love the reference of milk runs in this book too. Um, it's written here as. 
I was put on a 20-year-old ship that made quote-unquote milk runs, delivering personnel, medicine, spare parts, and other supplies from Earth to starbases and colonies and back again. I could have complained, but I felt that I would be pushing my luck. I decided I was doing penance for the Kobayashi Maru. You also see uh, in the beginning of this of this chapter, um, sort of the beginning of the end for Ben Finney. Uh, the Republic was yes. not at all what Ben Finney wanted, and because he felt that he had been stifled, his career had been put on the slow trajectory from being taught, from being an instructor at the academy, and and he like he is one that I I immediately want to go to the Constitution class vessel and be a hot shot, but. Instead of focusing on his duties, he instead focuses on the social life, whereas Kirk is there to do the work, which he knows that's what he has to do. Right. But then Ben Finney makes a grave error and almost destroys the ship, you know, just from being negligent. So Kirk had to report him. Unfortunately, it, it didn't work out very well for neither Kirk nor Finney, so... Well, to an extent, it doesn't work out for Kirk in the short run, but uh, I think that's one of those... I think the moment with... Um, Captain Garavik, uh, you know, choosing Kirk at the end to be the one to transfer with him, or one of two to transfer with him to the Farragut, it, it's one of those great captain moments, something you'd almost expect out of Kirk or Picard, because um, you have him doing the right thing and everybody shunning him except for the captain. The captain sees the value in that person, so I, I, re I really like that. Well, not just the captain as well. We, I also... Um one of the things I did enjoy about this chapter was the introduction of our favorite engineer, Mr. Scott. Yes, I love Mr. Scott, and I love that uh, Kirk and Scotty be kind of became best friends while he served on the Republic. Will, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, having Scotty come in is great, and, it, and it's, uh, again, I think ties to the Kelvin timeline because um, you have that re great relationship with Kirk and Scotty when they meet on, the, um, on uh, Delta Vega, I think it was. Uh, so, you know, it just shows um, the formulation of Kirk's crew that, that he's going to have that's going to stay with him for the better part of his life that, that really in many ways becomes his family more than his blood relations do. It also shows that Kirk has an impeccable judge of character and he can immediately sort out who are the good eggs and who are the bad eggs. And Montgomery Scott was definitely a good egg. So I have to ask, when, when you guys were reading this, were you envisioning uh, Simon Pegg or Jimmy Doohan? Oh, Jimmy Doohan. Absolutely. James Doohan, for sure. Okay, cool. Were you envisioning um, Simon Pegg? There were certain moments in the writing that I got more Simon Pegg than I got, than I got Doohan. But, you know, either way, I love both our Scots. Absolutely. Yes. Okay, so more to dive into in this chapter... Kirk gets promoted to a Constitution class ship, the Farragut, and that's uh, and that's interesting because that ties in, of course, to Obsession, which I think is a is a great Kirk episode too. It shows you know a, a dark moment in his life that he overcomes. On page seventy six, wow! I thought Garvik was getting a Constitution class ship. That was a big step up from the Republic. Um, there's one thing that I noticed the author is doing throughout the entirety of the book um, and it comes up because I'm looking at the word right now he's he's tracking a duffel bag through the entire novel did you guys pick up on that I did not no. please please go into tell detail me. tell me okay so um, when I took my creative writing class last year um, one of the things they were teaching us is you know 
try and pick like a person or an item and track it all the way through the checks, even if it doesn't have any significance to the plot. Like, keep bringing that item up, and it, like, you know, it's like, oh, like, it it somehow keeps the reader, you know, in the reality. So, um, David A. Goodman is tracking a duffel bag throughout the entire novel, and I thought it was really, really creative the way he was doing it. Interesting. I, I honestly did not pick up on that. Yeah, I put my duffel bag down and took a seat next to him through the porthole. I saw the Republic shuttle bay doors open, and then um, later on... Down the line, um, there's a couple more references to it, but um, Mr. Spock has a duffel bag at one point, and so I just I thought it was really clever, and I wanted to bring it up. Absolutely, I had no, I would not have I would not have known that. That is wonderful. Yeah, that's that actually makes me want to go back through. Right. Yeah, and pick up all the duffel bag references because there are a lot of them. It's like me picking up the Enterprise references. <laughs> yeah. Well, anyways, that was just that was just me being a writer and picking up on writing techniques. So. Nice, nice. Well, that's that's a great that's a great pull. Uh, one of the more overt things that I got out of this chapter, of course, was Kirk being introduced to a uh, young ensign named Uhura, who he um, described as a beautiful young woman who'd just gotten out of the academy. Uh, so I think that's another uh, moment that kind of leads towards the formulation of our. Um, of our core crew from TOS. Yeah, they're slowly coming together. We're slowly meeting them all. Also a shout out to the um, Enterprise reference in this section as well from Commander Koto, which is, I believe, a shout out to Manny Koto, which was the Enterprise showrunner for season four. Talking about Enterprise references, so after they have that fight with the, the cloud and they limp to Starbase 12, they go to a bar called... Yes, Feasels. Feasels. Um, it was run by a friendly proprietor whose race I wasn't familiar with. He had a large skull with ridges on his sides of his cheeks and forehead, which might have seemed threatening except for his constant jovality. He said his name was Sim, but I suspected he wasn't telling the truth. Um, and then he goes on to mention that the only thing he would tell me about himself was that the bar was named after one of his wives. And I immediately took some memory alpha and looked up that name. The bartender is none other than Dr. Flux. Yes, indeed. And he'd lost a close friend on Tarsus, so it makes all the more sense. Exactly. And I was wondering if that Denobulan on Tarsus 4 that we read about in Drastic Measures had been friends with Dr. Flux. I think we mentioned that on our podcast, didn't we? Yes. Yeah, we did talk about that. There's a direct reference to a Denobulan in there. And, and of course, calling himself Sim, which I thought was just heartbreaking because... Yeah, um, it made me sad. Sim is one of my favorite one-shot characters in um, all of Enterprise. That episode, I mean, I can't get through that episode without a tear in my eye. I don't think anybody can. Uh, going back to the cloud, just for a few moments, um, you you definitely see one of the first traumatic events of Kirk in Starfleet. You see yes. this massive cloud, this near unstoppable cloud, and Kirk hesitating at the phaser control and not firing in time, and and getting into the ship and killing over half the ship, including the captain. And no one, no one blames him. The, the commander doesn't blame him. Dr. Piper doesn't blame him. But Kirk blames himself, and he gets his first glimpse of the trauma of being in space. And you can sort of see the images of what his parents felt in terms of 
the hardships they felt while serving Starfleet, especially his father. So you can definitely see some of the echoes of his parents coming back and then being grounded on Starbase 12 and being in the officer's bungalow and not on the ship. So you definitely see some of the parents coming back. And then, of course, on to the introduction of the one and only Carol Marcus. Yes. Yes. Anybody else hoping that he would have just stayed with Carol and the rest of the book would have been about him um, raising his son? Because I did. Well, that would have been that would have been the end of the book, I believe. But it would have been the end of Star Trek. Would it would it would have been? But I think we need like a like an offshoot of this. The Last Temptation of Kirk. Yeah, where he just kind of um, could be like a like a you know one of those romantic novellas about him and Carol Marcus. Right. Right. It brings back that phrase that I had um, I had talked about uh, at the beginning of the of the show about uh, duty first, self second, and Kirk just can't he can't bring himself to settle down because there's always that calling to be back in space and to be mm-hmm. something bigger than himself. I mean, but I kind of understand that because if you were doing something that that grand and that important and that exciting, like there's there's just n- nothing else that that would mean as much to you. As, as going out there and, you know, doing all these incredible things. Yeah, and I I think one of the things that I, I want to compliment the author on in regards to Carol Marcus being introduced at this point is when I got to this section, I actually had to go on Memory Alpha and just check again to make sure that um, Carol Marcus was in fact introduced in Wrath of Khan because I think he weaved her so well into this story, it felt as though she had been a character in TOS. It makes you makes you forget how little continuity TOS actually had. Exactly. Flying by the seat of their pants in the 60s. <laughs> yeah. And I also and, count, um, I know this, this book had been written before Star Trek Discovery was sort of out in the open, but I almost caught just a, just a, maybe a hint of a Discovery reference in this chapter as well. Oh, do tell. Well, it was, um, it, was, it was around page 90 when uh, he was on the hot spur, and it was when the bridge had been blown out. And, and um, as suddenly as the wind started, it stopped, and he could feel the cold weep over his uniform. And it reminded me of, of Michael Burnham in, uh, I believe it was the second episode, flying from one part of the yeah. ship to the other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I actually loved that moment. I went back and reread that because I thought that was an extremely well-written moment for the visual. You could see him trying to just hold on to the door of the turbo lift and knowing that the computer won't close it as long as he's holding on. I thought that was really great. I love that you brought up the hot spur now, too, because um, Kirk is going hes going from an old Baton Rouge-class ship to a Constitution-class ship back to a Baton Rouge-class ship. Um, but this time it goes a little differently for him because he ends up assuming command of the ship um, over another person who just didn't take the initiative. Froze. Yes. And I think the way that this um, chapter ends can really sum up the kind of overwhelmed nature of um, Kirk at this point in his life, too. Because, you know... He says the last sentence of the or the last two sentences of this chapter are, "I was twenty seven and I was now a captain, and I hadn't seen my child in two years." He's got some issues. I mean, that is overwhelming. It just kind of makes it seem like his life is just kind of flying past him, and he doesn't really know how to slow it down. But at the same time, he's not going to stop either. No. All right, I think this is a great opportunity to move into chapter five, which I have written um, McCoy. Yeah. 
I'm a doctor, not a babysitter. Dr. McCoy joins the Hotspur, and after running out of dilithium crystals, they beam down to an abandoned Tellarite mine and are attacked by violent creatures. The Hotspur returns to the shipyard to be decommissioned, and Kirk and Bones meet Spock on the shuttle ride back to Earth. Kirk gets a desk job until he's made captain of the Enterprise. Nice, yeah. Uh, I loved that um, away mission because that also related back to uh, a line in one of the TNG novels that we covered early in this uh, podcast where they talked about, uh, by Picard's time, the uh, foolhardy era of captains going on dangerous away missions had long passed. And I think on what you have on this one, you have the captain, the first officer, and, and the... And the engineer are all on the mission. It's like they just left yeah. the ship. They just left the ship uh, on cruise control up there. They did. They did. Going on with what we had talked about in the last chapter about Kirk and sort of he had some issues going on. You could tell in the beginning of this that he's having a hard time dealing with this because um, it, it talks about on page ninety six about sort of a shrinking of his personal identity, as if his nerve endings had been extended to the physical limits of Hotspur. So to, and he never quite slept, not in the way he had before. So now he's like a parent, and his ears listening apprehensively, even in his sleep. And it's like he has a two-year-old son off on this off on this starbase, but he's become more attached to the ship than flesh and blood. Yeah, and what's heartbreaking in this chapter is he he thinks he's going to get to spend some time with Carol and and his son um, because he's he's going to take them on board and and. Uh, basically shuttle them back to Earth. But um, unfortunately, Carol beams up and doesn't even step off the transporter pad and basically just tells him, you're not going to see your son. We're going to go on a different ship. Bye. You know? Yeah. And then uh, the scene following it was probably one of my favorite scenes of the first half of the novel where um, Kirk and McCoy get into a shouting match on the bridge. And I would read the whole section, but it's far too long. But um, it ends with Kirk turning to his bridge officers. Show's over, folks. Let's get out of here. Um, but it leads to a really nice moment with Kirk and um, McCoy. Basically just, you know, this is this is how they became close. This is how they're friends now, you know. Yeah, I really loved that moment. That I thought there was a lot of, uh, you know, it, it it highlighted the great cantankerous nature of McCoy, but also the his ability to be soft, you know, with Kirk, kind of that that Jim relationship. There's Jim and there's damn it, Jim. <laughs> there's a great line here. It was my first exposure to McCoy's emotional perceptiveness, which I would eventually count on, but at the moment it caught me off guard. It took me a moment to realize that I also felt relief. Someone who knew the guilt I was carrying, someone who understood. I finished the drink in my glass and looked at the picture again. When was the last time you saw her? It's been a while, he said, and then handed, and then held out the bottle. Another? So that was uh, the animated series reference, was it not? To McCoy's daughter, Joanna? Yes. Yes, indeed. There you go. There you go. There's my, there's my task reference. Right. <laughs> There's there's also another character that really sort of comes to light in this chapter too. Um, First officer Gary Mitchell. Mm-hmm. There was there was there was kind of a throwaway line in here that I picked up on. Um, my only criticism of Gary Mitchell was he tended to be too loose regarding the rules of fraternization with the female crew members, and it it's <laughs> I, 
I'm not sure if if uh, David Goodman knows the actor Gary Lockwood, but it's very reminiscent of Gary Lockwood and his um, famous womanizing um, on the films and television shows he worked on, particularly Star Trek and 2001: A Space Odyssey. But uh, like character, like actor, it seems. Yes, indeed. Um, and uh, Gary Mitchell's character puts a whole new meaning into the term "Can you lend me a hand?" in this chapter. Oh yeah. We see a medical procedure that I don't think we've ever seen on Star Trek before, where McCoy uh, says, screw it, and just severs his arm for later repair. Breaks it off, yeah. Which I now want to see. I want to see that on Star Trek now. This is how he gets his nickname, too. Um, the, the passage is, I don't know what poison it is. I need to buy some time. He moved Gary's injured arm out away from his body, carefully aimed the phaser, and sliced off his arm above the wound. The heat from the phaser catarized the cuts. We all sat there in stunned silence for a moment. I looked around at my crew, scared, tired. There was a severed head and a paw of a giant rat, as well as the amputated arm of my first officer and best friend. Well, I said, everybody good work today. Earned your pay for the week, everyone. Yep. Great job. Just kind of like the visuals in that are just kind of, it's almost... Too ridiculous to not laugh at. I also liked the sort of obscure reference to Star Trek V in this chapter as well, with Uhura being a good pilot, which you see in Star Trek V. She's a good shuttle pilot. Also, as well as um, uh, the naked time when she took over the helm. Better pilot than Troy. Ah, uh, you got she me there. The ship. She was in command of the ship more in the animated series than she ever was in anything else. That's right. That's right. All right, guys, what else about Chapter Five? Well, I think uh, we have... You know, a, a pivotal moment in Kirk's life in this chapter, of course, uh, when the um, the ship is decommissioned and they're back at the starbase and they're asked to transport a, a Starfleet officer to Earth. And um, they wind up uh, with our first uh, ever Kirk, McCoy, and Spock scene. And it sort of had to be on a confined space, did it not? For them to really get to know each other and for McCoy and Spock to really get on each other's nerves in a way until mccoy passes out drunk no other way i'm afraid oh. so when he got off yeah when spock got off the ship the first thing mccoy said well there's a fun guy and you just said that in a perfect uh, carl urban voice <laughs> you know sometimes i can't distinguish between the the you know the prime crew and the kelvin crew because they chose the actors so well for the kelvin timeline movies that that any line that any of these characters say you could say it in in either carl urban or um deforest kelly and it would work either way same with zachary quinto and leonard nimoy i think right and once you get off and once you get off the shuttle on that introduction and you you they head back to starfleet headquarters and you see them sort of desked for a while and well actually yes you do get to go home he does he did go home he goes home yes. and then he goes over to he goes to San Francisco, not being That's able right. to stay at home. I love the introductions to the different admirals that will play bigger roles in his life later on, like Admiral Cartwright, Admiral mm-hmm. Morrow, uh, Matt Decker, all in the Archer Building, no less. Yes, exactly. The Archer Building. I had I had a note on that, and yeah, I like. I think this is our first Deck, uh, our first Decker reference in here, talking about how he beats him out to uh, the youngest yes. rank of captain ever. He did. Um, he's 29 at this point, and Decker was 31. So 
I like that. And um, it's a great transition to Kirk, captain of the Enterprise. Um, so at the end of this chapter, he gets assigned to the the Constitution class ship, the Enterprise, and then realizes that the Enterprise's records officer is Ben Finney. Oh crap! Uh oh! Dun dun dun! Bum bum bum! And it's definitely an eye-opening experience for our good captain when Christopher Pike welcomes him on board. <clears throat> really gives him a crash course in what it means to really be a, a starship commander in this new yeah. age of starship travel. Yes, indeed. I think we should just transition right into Chapter 6 now. Uh, chapter 6, Kirk takes command of the Enterprise from Captain Pike and begins his first, first five-year mission. Yeah, I love the way that this chapter started with Pike giving him the tour of the Enterprise, and I'm I'm sure all of us highlighted the the same thing because I think he says one of the most profound lines that you could get from a Starfleet captain. Uh, he says, um, "This job will rip the guts out of you. You have no choice but to lean on people. This crew will become your friends." He took another long pause, and then they'll die. I definitely did have that highlighted. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, I think that that was really something. And of course, you know, it's illustrated really quickly with like Gary Mitchell and, you know, other characters. But um, I think that passage that you just mentioned is the heart and soul of this book. Yes. Yeah, I would agree. I would absolutely agree with that. And it also shows you that uh, while we may have advanced as a society, politics have a whole lot of influence in how Starfleet does its job. So with fleet captain being a desk job and they wanted me out of the way with with pike and and it was it's it's very interesting how they also wanted kirk out of the way so they promoted kirk to fleet captain and got him out of the way and so it's 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 interesting how politics still plays a role in the 23rd and 24th centuries mm-hmm. um but this is the point of the book where it started to lose me a little bit because now we're just going through original series episodes kind of one at a time and while i do appreciate the kind of extra context that these passages are giving us it was still kind of just like okay i've seen this already i've seen this already i've seen this already however one of my probably favorite moments in this chapter two of them actually um, are when they're talking about the episode with the Romulans. Balance of Terror. Thank you. Um, so there's one line on page 142. Pointed ears, slanted eyebrows, he could have been Spock's father. Yes. And I just I had an LOL was written here. So funny because he is um, the actor, not the character. Oh, Mark Leonard. Yeah. But then on the other page, 143. In relation to to the navigator Bailey and his reaction to seeing that the Romulans look exactly like the Vulcans, um, I wasn't going to have it. It was ridiculous, raw, and obvious bigotry, and as soon as I could replace Styles, I would, but not in the middle of a crisis. I'll take, I guess I'll it, take was, you back it was one. Styles, not Bailey. My apologies. That's right. That's right. Styles replaced Bailey. I'll take you back one page. Um... It's interesting how um, the 23rd century refers to religion, mm-hmm. with uh, Tomlinson and Martin getting married. Having her Catholic. But that was in a TOS episode. That whole thing was 
was already seen on screen. But they don't overtly reference religion, and they actually they do a very good job of sidestepping it. Uh, by best count, the only time that I can think of an overt religious reference in Trek is when Phlox talks about attending um, uh, the Vatican, attending a service at the Vatican. So I think that that's interesting that they chose to add that factor into there when Roddenberry did, did a very careful job of not really skirting the religious topic. And they never say in the series, they never say that she's Catholic. I think this is an add-on in here. But yeah, I thought that was interesting. But maybe that's just carried over from tradition. Like some people just like to get married in a chapel just because that's kind of like a human tradition that goes way, way, way back. It also goes along the lines of um, that a uh, little bit forward when they're talking about Kodos. As I have written here in the in the margin, religion fades, but Shakespeare lives on. Which is so interesting to me. Yeah, I, I like that too because that that flows through the um, continuous references to Shakespeare that that are so great in Trek. All right, guys, is there anything that you want to bring out from the um, many, many, many TOS episodes that we're flying through in this chapter? Well, well, definitely one that I wanted to to talk about a little bit is at the bottom of uh, page one forty nine. There is, I thought this was the heart and soul of the book for me. Um, they were talking about um, it was in the episode of The Naked Time and it was when Kirk was uh, had, had been infected with that terrible virus and it had brought to the front of my mind just how attached I'd become to the Enterprise I had found something I was willing to commit everything to but because it was an inanimate object the ship could give nothing in return it was a dark psychological moment I loved something that couldn't love me back that was the common denominator that kept Kirk coming back. He just kept coming back. It was something that couldn't love him back, but he gave it his everything. Mm-hmm. And none of his relationships throughout his life seemed to work out very well, except with the Enterprise. Yeah, and, and I think it's um, interesting in the in the way that this chapter rolls through that you see how well he manages to handle his time on the Enterprise, because whereas people like Finney go, you know, crazy... Uh, he deals with a lot of personal trauma and still comes out of it on the other end. There's a thing at the beginning talking about how, you know, Mitchell and other characters are, are dead, you know, within just a short period of time of him being captain, and he has to uh, deal with the trauma of that and still flow through it. Right. And there's also, I want to just reference before I forget, on page one. 30, which is not too far into the chapter, we have a, uh, a very, uh, very tight T, uh, TNG reference here. Uh, Ensign Morgan Bates, Bateson reporting for duty, he said. Yes. I nodded. That is Mr. Kelsey Grammer in Cause and Effect on TNG, so I love that there was that reference in there. Mr. Kelsey Grammer reporting for duty. I'm so glad you're catching all these deep cut references that I missed. Yeah, I mean, that because that is a super deep cut. One thing that I did like uh, towards the very end of the chapter was the Organians and the, the peace treaty that the Organians sort of broker between the Federation and the Klingons. And I, and I found it very interesting that this sort of throwaway episode from the original series sort of inspired the decades of peace between the Federation and the Klingons, and that this sort of mythical power in the universe was keeping the Federation and the Klingons at bay for so many years. And I thought that was such an interesting little tie-in for the author to make. So I really... I, I That's Errand of that. Mercy, right? That's right. That's right. 
I actually just caught that episode on BBC America not too long ago, and uh, I was, um, you know, just really impressed with some of the messages in there. That, that's another one, like, Let This Be Your Last Battlefield, that had a lot to say about the, the times in which it was written and, and performed. All right. So, uh, Tyler, anything else for Chapter 6? I'm good. I am good. This was an uh, this was a really deep and intense chapter, um, and it's uh, to me it's very characteristic of James Kirk because he'll he'll want to hit the highlights for his readers, and that's sort of how Kirk operates. He doesn't, I Kirk doesn't strike me as person as a person that remembers every day, every hour. He remembers the highlights. Um, so this, I think, it's very characteristic of how Kirk would write it. So I I liked how it was structured personally. So I I thought it was well done, well done chapter. Yeah, I mean, for the uh, rabbit hole that he could have gone down, he did a really good job of at least keeping it to the to a lot of episodes that we really know, a couple episodes we may not know, and you know, not just recapping them like Memory Alpha, but giving another edge to it. So, uh, Chapter 7, the five-year mission continues with Kirk and Spock looking for McCoy in the 1930s. Uh, trying to avoid a history-altering event, Kirk has to let a woman he's fallen in love with die. He meets an evil man named Khan, and even gets sent to a parallel universe. So, Marty, what were your thoughts on Chapter 7? Um, chapter 7 was an interesting retelling of City on the Edge of Forever. Um, I thought it was interesting that he chose to spend a large amount of time on this particular episode of uh, the original series. Um, I'm wondering if that's a decision that's made because it's maybe a fan favorite episode or it's um, Goodman's favorite episode. But um, I love that we, um, in the episode, we kind of got to see like what McCoy was up to before um, he got to Kirk, but it was interesting to see what, like, um, Kirk's thoughts were, and even though, like, he had no idea McCoy was causing trouble. Um, so I thought that was interesting. Yeah, Tyler, how about you? Chapter 7 to me is, um, very much a, a critical turning point in the life of Captain Kirk, because you also, the, the way that this book begins, uh, with the prologue, you start with a prologue of The City on the Edge of Forever, and Edith Keeler running down to the basement and finding Kirk and Spock uh, hiding in her basement from the police. And so now in Chapter 7, you come full circle with that chapter, and you see a lot of the development between Kirk and Edith Keeler. And not only that, but you have some actually quite nice colorful commentary about how Kirk and Spock view the 1930s Earth and its ancient traditions and racism and so forth. We also see a peculiar change in Captain Kirk in which he falls for Edith Keeler much harder than he fell for anyone other, anyone else in the Star Trek universe, including Carol Marcus, I might, I might add. Um, there is a particular section in the book where he talks about how hard he fell for Edith Keeler and that he sort of felt that Edith Keeler was almost like another time traveler like himself. And because she very much speaks about the future, she talks about this hopeful vision for the future when mankind is not living in hunger and disease and, and threat of war, and that he refused to let Edith Keeler die. He refused to allow history to play out as it was, and that he, uh, she, and, she and Kirk both could change the future together uh, with the knowledge that he had, that uh, he, he was sure he could make Germany not win. And uh, Edith could still live, which is quite an 
an interesting development for Captain Kirk, and I'm curious to gain your both your both uh, perspective on this as to why would Kirk fall so hard for Edith Keeler um, compared to the other loves in his life? What's so diff- What's so special about Edith Keeler? Well, I think in the original episode, the speech that she gives. Um, you know, when he gets back there, he thinks he's in a barbarian time and he hears her. Uh, and I think he's deeply touched, um, jumping ahead to chapter 11, which recounts the events of the voyage home. Um, uh, he describes Jillian Taylor as being an angel who helps them. And what he says is we found another angel just like in the 1930s. So I think, you know, he, you know, everybody has that one person that they fall for and then maybe they, compare other people to uh this is obviously that one for that one for him i think the reason he falls so hard for her is because she she's able to see beyond her situation beyond beyond her reality beyond her time perhaps and that's something that really appeals to kirk as an explorer and as you know someone who also kind of sees beyond his current situation he kind of sees the big picture and i think Edith Keeler does too, and so that's why they're drawn to each other. What do you think, Tyler? Well, I, I, I agree with William in the in the aspect that Edith is sort of a, a woman from another time, much as much as Kirk was, but also because he was so far away from the Enterprise with not really a way of an easy way of returning, he starts to let his guard down and, and the sort of the tendrils of the Enterprise that sort of are entwined with Kirk start to disappear a little bit. So he's able to engage himself in manual labor and get a little bit of that sense of being back on the farm in Iowa, so to speak. And you have Edith Keeler that comes along and sort of gives him a subtle reminder of a hopeful optimism of the future. And he, I, I don't think he can be, he can help but be drawn to that. And there's just sort of this gravitational pull from Edith Keeler that, really brings Kirk in and he just he has to be near her. He he talks in the book about how he just feels better when he's near her, even if it's just on the floor of her apartment. And sort of those the the responsibility of the crew they just fade away and all they can think about is Edith Keeler and protecting her, which in a way it's a very interesting thing uh, interesting way to think about because without the Enterprise there he's got to hold on to something. And Edith Keeler doesn't seem like the kind of person that immediately loves back. So it's almost like a substitution for the Enterprise in a way. And I want to also mention two stylistic things within um, this novel that I really like. Um, at the halfway point, there's a collection of photographs, much like you see in traditional autobiographies, you know, when you read like a presidential or political bio, they feature photographs from throughout their life and they actually did a really good job of assembling a a small collection of artifacts that that kirk supposedly takes back with him from um from his time in the 1930s they used some original press photos that were done at the time of of shatner and joan collins and i just thought that was a really touching piece to put in there i totally agree with you will and and then and then the other thing that i really like is just in the first couple of pages of the chapter is the way that they um when he talks about the guardian of forever, um, 
they talk about how like the locations are redacted by Starfleet and everything. I thought that was just a very nice stylistic touch in the writing because obviously if the guardian of forever was discovered, then you'd have, you know, a million people running amok in history trying to, you know, go back and see things or change things. And I just think that's a, that was a fascinating uh, thing to throw in there that Starfleet is hiding the location of the guardian. Oh, and, and uh, almost a no brainer when you think about it, just like you said, it's like, this is a very dangerous weapon that fallen into the wrong and so rather than try to destroy it you know keep it a secret but i would almost choose the latter of trying to destroy it i heard that will Riker finds the guardian of forever in another star Trek novel yes i believe that's imzadi which we're going to be covering at some point in the future so there's a reference to a ship called the akuda yeah was that in this chapter i loved that it's on page 202 top of 202 it's a science vessel i thought that was really really fun and of course, um, City on the Edge of Forever wasn't the only episode covered in Chapter 7, too. We also had um, the Doomsday Machine and the Enterprise Incident and a couple of others. I think it was it was actually impressive that the um, the writer managed to encapsulate the entire original series into only two of the 12 chapters in the book. Yeah, but my big problem with these chapters is I've already watched the original series. I already know the storyline. That is that's that's so true, and I also think uh, David Goodman had the foresight for one of the reviews that was written about this book. It's good for both the dedicated fan and the casual fan alike. So I think he's writing it for all audiences, not just for hardcore Trek fans like you, myself, and William, but also for the casual fan who might see it on the shelves at Barnes and Noble and pick it up and read it in a Starbucks in a day. Yeah. Okay. So uh, let's go ahead and uh, wrap up um, chapter seven and move into uh, the post five year mission period and talk about um, chapter eight. Uh, Chapter eight is uh, in the final months of the five year mission. Kirk visits Delta four and meets a Delton named Ilea who was involved with Will Decker. As Spock had left the enterprise, Kirk recruits Decker to be his new XO on hopes that he'd take over as captain. Uh, Kirk is promoted to Admiral, and off we go into the plot of the motion picture. So, uh, Tyler, what did you think of Chapter 8? Chapter 8 is uh, very much something you don't see on 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 the, on the television series or on the films as well. You sort of come in at the tail end of Kirk's time as Chief of Starfleet Operations, and you see the sort of the unfortunate side of having a big military institution like Starfleet in which there are a lot of politics involved. Uh, particularly with all of the admirals like Nagura and Admiral Morrow and Admiral Cartwright, they all have their own agendas as far as um, what uh, what direction they want to take Starfleet in. And it's also interesting when they're bringing the Enterprise back to Earth, uh, Starfleet also views um, refitting the Enterprise and keeping it intact uh, when you have so many Constitution-class vessels that were destroyed Uh, through the last five years, that it's a very powerful piece of propaganda for the people of the Federation, which is so amazing to me after hundreds of years that Starfleet and the human race still relies on propaganda uh, to relay messages. So uh, that was very interesting to me. Uh, You also see the almost the sort of the breakup of the trio with Spock going back to Vulcan and requesting an extended leave of absence and thinking that he has been contaminated by all of the Earth emotions, and um, being that friendship was the furthest thing from my mind, said Captain Kirk. And 
that's just it's it's kind of it's a little sad in a way because they sort of think like, well, this is the end, and that Kirk is being promoted to admiral, and they're all going to go off their separate ways, and that's the end of it. But um, little do we, little do they know that uh, the the adventure is just beginning for them. Yeah, yeah, I, I like that. Um, you know, we see that breakup of the trio, but I like that Kirk also um, keeps you know his essentials around. You know, he says that Uhura became his chief of staff, and he brought on Sulu and Chekhov as well. Um, this had the double advantage of keeping them from getting new assignments on other ships, so I could put them back on the Enterprise when the time came, as well as providing me with a group of officers I was already comfortable with. So I like that they they you know made him very honorable in that respect. Kirk is such a peculiar character to me because he never could really let go of the Enterprise. He was so deeply involved with the refit of the Enterprise that um, that uh, Decker and Scotty almost feel like he's, he's getting in the way and he's slowing them down. Because one day he still feels that he's just going to get back on the Enterprise and just fly back off into the galaxy. But in a lot of ways, uh, as far as the military goes, um, especially with Starfleet and in, uh, just in our time with uh, with our military, that once you're promoted, that's sort of the end of the story. And uh, you, you either stick with that desk job or you go and do something else. And uh, Kirk just never could really wrap his head around that. And uh, th- th- that's very interesting to me that someone like Kirk, who's dealt with so much loss and so much anguish over his life, is refusing to let go of something like the Enterprise. Yeah. Yeah, Marty, how did you feel about Chapter 8? I have a question, and I want to get your guys' input on this. So, um, while while Kirk's an admiral, um, he mentions that he's in charge of moving the ships around and kind of doing all that bureaucratic stuff, but then he also is in charge of approving budgets and um, monitoring expenditures, but from what I am to believe, there's no money in the future, so... What kind of budget is he approving, and what kind of increased expenditures are we talking about? I believe I believe he's ex- he's approving budgets in terms of resources to be to be used, such as metals, components, uh, manpower. Um, I suppose you could construe that as as being a budget in the twenty third century, as far as time mm-hmm. constraints and personnel and so forth. That's what I would that's what I would make it out to be. I mean, that's what I've always assumed as far as like, um, you know, in terms of the universe as a whole, obviously in the Federation, there probably isn't, you know, a a monetary deal, but that doesn't mean that there aren't in other places. So like, for instance, when, you know, people visited Quarks in um, Deep Space Nine, I assume that, you know, the Federation covers the expenditure of the officers dining there. Uh, so I have to assume that there are, you know, financials that the Federation has to handle with other cultures or maybe just outside of its own boundaries. It all gets very confusing very quickly the more you pull on these threads. <laughs> Fort Knox is now full of gold-pressed Latin. That's right. right. You, also see, um, you also see an interesting political tidbit in this chapter as well uh, with Admiral Magura implementing his strategy to start building up the military as far as the Klingon neutral zone goes. It's very much uh, along the lines of Star Trek, the undiscovered country, uh, sort of ripped from the headlines of the Soviet Union collapsing. And um, you have um, Admiral Nagura saying, we need to build up our resources along the neutral zone so that the Klingons can follow suit. And so that one day they will be so exhausted that they'll be defenseless and they'll have no choice but to bend to their will, which 
has a lot of repercussions throughout the galaxy. And it's just very reminiscent of the Soviets and the United States back in the 80s when, when Ronald Reagan said we have to spend our way out of this. Mr. Gorkon, tear down this planet. Exactly, exactly. I also liked a little throwaway line on page 198 about uh, Kirk reminiscing about his time as admirals, going, even though I was busy, I found myself looking inward, trying to figure out if this was what I wanted. My last few years on the Enterprise had begun to feel empty. And uh, I have, in, in the margin here, so did the fans. <laughs> because the last few episodes of Star, of Star Trek, the original series, unfortunately, did feel a bit hollow and empty and devoid of some of the good storytelling. So I, I appreciate that the author sort of took the fans into consideration there. Yeah, and I thought it was interesting that they chose not to include any, I, I, maybe I'm wrong, maybe I missed something, but any references to the animated series. None at all. That's right. With, I would say, maybe the exception of McCoy's daughter, Joanna. That's about it. That's true. That's true, yeah. But no overt references to a single episode, because, you know, we have a Return to the Guardian of Forever in there, and we have, you know, for, for what it's worth, I think there are some good episodes of the animated series. It's a fun, it's a fun addition. And the first Trek to win an Emmy. Exactly. I'm, That's right. I still really want to know what happened to um, large-sized Spock. He's out there somewhere, I bet. He's out there someplace. He's, he's out there. I also wanted to bring up that we get two new ships, the um, the Akuta and the Obama. I appreciated that. Yes. That was a nice that was a nice nod. Yeah, we haven't seen too many um, presidential ships uh, in the line, so I thought that was interesting. I liked that. Devol- yeah, it was yes, a nice Devol- little wants to mention, yeah. Well, and that also throws back to uh, a moment that um, I guess can't really be considered canon because it's a deleted scene, but you know in uh, Star Trek V, there was a deleted scene when um, Chekhov and Sulu were walking through the forest. Uh, that was actually supposed to be in South Dakota, and their like goal that they were hiking to was to see Mount Rushmore, which had a um, a black woman on it, added as the fifth uh, a fifth head. So, you know, just little political speckles put into Star Trek. It's coming. It's coming. But we'll remember Star Trek V didn't exist. Hey. Stop that. As far as, we'll, as we'll, far get far as, we'll get there. We'll, we'll get, get there. there. We'll get there. We'll get there. Black alert, folks. Black alert. All right. Um, so let's move on to Chapter 9. Uh, in Chapter 9, Kirk is now in his second five-year mission. Chekhov leaves for the Reliant, and at the end of the mission, Spock is given command of the Enterprise, and Kirk resigns. He moves to the country to live with his new love, Antonia, before being asked to come back to Starfleet. Um, who would like to lead this one off? I'll go first. I actually really liked that we got to see more of Kirk's life with Antonia because it was such like a, it was just almost like a uh, passing thing in generations. And I wanted to know like how they met, how they fell in love, like how they bought the house. And I get all of that in this chapter. So for me personally, that's amazing that I get to know all those things I was wondering about when watching Generations. And Butler. and uh, You can't forget about Butler. Butler. Butler's the horse, right? No, Butler's the dog. Oh. Big dog. That, oh, yeah. In, in all honesty, um, I, Generations was the first Star Trek movie I ever saw in a movie theater, and I adore it. It is one of my, is one of my favorite Star Trek movies. Um, I know I'm in the minority on that, but... Um, I like it, that too. That sequence... I do. 
that sequence always like puts me on the verge of tears because it's so nostalgic and I feel so bad for Kirk because, you know, he's, he's seeing all these things that he wished he had back and, you know, he only gets them for a brief moment. That scene really gets to me. I think I watched it recently and live texted the whole thing to you guys. Yes, I enjoyed that. that was I think good. I watched it the next night because you were doing that. <laughs> I'm like, why is Riker's uniform different? Why is his sleeve so big? Ah, it doesn't make sense. I, 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 it's, it's interesting in this chapter how politics continue to play a big role in Starfleet, just like in the last chapter. Um, you see Kirk being, they try to promote Kirk to fleet captain, <laughs> which he saw years ago with Captain Pike saying, they want me out of the way. And Kirk is not going to subject himself to the same fate as Captain Pike in a lot of ways. And so he makes the, makes the very tough decision to just walk away. He just walks away from it and goes back to Iowa before he goes to Idaho to the, to the uncle farm. But it's, that's, that's quite a decision for him to make. And I just, I, it's just something you, you would least expect from Captain Kirk. How about you, Will? What are your thoughts on Chapter 9? Well, like I said, generations means a lot to me, and although it's it's not a, a huge aspect of the film, you know, this is kind of the tie-in to that, um, because obviously this book couldn't continue past the uh, prologue of the film. So, you know, to have the, these moments with Antonia and to actually talk about that, you know, difficult decision, the only thing that I missed is, I don't, maybe I didn't miss it, was there any reference to orbital skydiving in there? Because I was looking for that. No, and I don't think we had transparent aluminum either. There was no transparent aluminum in this book. This book loses a warp factor for me. Mm. I um, like how this chapter ends with uh, um, a, a brief a brief recap of Carol Marcus and the effect that Carol had on Kirk's life with Project Genesis, a proposal to the Federation. Yeah, that was kind of fun. I like how that was Project Genesis was introduced to Kirk before the events of Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. And and he uh, replays her message four times just to watch her smile. That was that was heartbreaking. Yeah, it really was. All right, shall we move on to chapter ten? Yes, but um, I should mention that the last few chapters I've started to become disconnected from the novel. Just and I'm I can't quite put my finger on it. I think it's because um, we've we've gone through all these scenes before. But I really I'm liking the parts that that we don't see on screen. And I'm really disliking the things that we have seen on screen. I agree with you. Honestly, um, no offense to the author, but I, I more or less skimmed the the um, Wrath of Khan, Search for Spock, and Voyage Home chapters. Heck yeah, the next few I, I did I did skim. I didn't I didn't fully engross myself. So these are movies that I can literally recite word by word. So you know, I didn't. I just didn't. It didn't do it much for me. How about you, Tyler? Well, on the contrary, I, I, I tend to disagree because I, I believe David was uh, covering all his bases when he wrote these chapters because he's writing it not only for the hardcore fan but for the, for, but for the um, average Joe as well. Uh, you, have, you have a certain amount of insight with the Wrath of Khan chapter with um, him talking about his reminiscing about um, his discussion with Professor Gill all those years ago at Starfleet Academy and saying that he had been a fool, that uh, we often we so often hold up those heroes, men who achieve great things, ignoring the sacrifices they force others to make in order to succeed. And unfortunately, um, he allowed Khan to live all those years ago, and it caused all these events to happen, and it led to the death of 
for all intents and purposes, his best friend, one of his only friends in the whole galaxy. Which can almost be directly tied back to City on the Edge of Forever and his sense of duty, because obviously at that time he felt a duty not to kill Khan, uh, so he let him survive, and that led to the death of his friend, just the same as you know his sense of duty in the past led to the death of his, the love of his life. Right. And then you have, I think you have an even greater insight in the Star Trek Three section of this chapter when he's talking about yeah. the destruction of the Enterprise. Oh yeah, I actually have that section highlighted. Yeah, this bears reading. Um, the truth was, I wanted blood. This is right after David was killed. And as soon as David died, all the emotions I'd invested in the Enterprise seemed hollow. It was a ship, a technological marvel, but still a piece of machinery. At that moment, it was nothing but a trophy to my accomplishments and I purposely threw it away as penance for my son's death. I love that. I love that line. Deep stuff, Kirk. Which, in a lot of ways, it just, it, you know, he, he would give it all up to have his son back. And But that those, kind of also those... ties into the moment we highlighted with um, when he's taking the ship over from Captain Pike. And Captain Pike's, if we remember correctly, says the job will rip the guts out of you. You have no choice but to lean on people. The crew will become your best friends, and then they'll die. And then they'll die. What a life to live, working in Starfleet. Yeah. No, good chapter. Good chapter. Good overview of those films. And, and, and it, it makes you want to see the films to find out more about what happens. You have this kind of insight into Kirk's thoughts, and I think, it, I think on my next viewing of these films, it'll, it'll only enhance them. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, I, I think so. I, mean, I, I was actually... I'm anxious to go through, like I said last week, I've been trying to go through certain episodes that I didn't know nearly as much about, like Court Martial, because there were so many references to Finney in here. Um, it'll be nice to revisit, you know, movies that I know so well. I think it's probably been, I don't know, a year or so since I've watched them. So it'll be nice to revisit them after having read these. Oh, very good. Very good. All right, let's talk about Chapter 11, which is um, The Voyage Home. Another very short chapter. Yes, but uh, one of my favorite first lines of a chapter is almost a Janeway line, but, you know, still fits any Star Trek captain. There was no coffee on Vulcan. In bold. Yes. The the only person who wouldn't have been phased by that is Picard. And Scotty found something in the Klingon ship called Ractagino. Yes. <laughs> it really wasn't what we wanted. I love how they mentioned that they refitted the, the Klingon vessel for, um, for humans to use. Because I always had wondered how, how they just stole the ship and we're just like, hey, we can use Klingon ships now. No big deal. Isn't it amazing how this Klingon bridge is exactly set like the Enterprise bridge and everyone sits in the same spot? <laughs> weird. Isn't it weird that they had to shoot all the bridge scenes from the side? And I also like the, the reference that's made in this chapter about San Francisco in the 1980s, that it's a loud, polluted, angry, intense, energetic, and colorful place. I mean, how can uh, how could you even conceive being that far out of time? Like somebody today being in San Francisco around the era of the gold rush, it would probably be overwhelming. Right, right. Yeah. Less expensive, but overwhelming. I also... This is... This is so, it's, 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 it's both funny and a little mean at the same time, but the author gives a little section that uh, Kirk encounters to Pow, in which she discovers that Kirk is alive after all these years, and he leaves, and she leaves him with the phrase, you have increased your weight, 
It is not healthful. She then turned and floated away. And then... <laughs> Did she come all that way to tell me I gotten fat? <laughs> I love that. That was great. Gutsy. Um, I think I have something highlighted. Yes, I do. At the end of this chapter, um, I thought this was really interesting. This is when they are traveling up to the Enterprise A. Uh, we went up to our new ship, the Travel Pod Approached. It had been a Constitution-class ship called the Tai Ho, but they renamed it the Enterprise. We had come home for the last time. So they didn't build them a brand new ship. They just refitted an old ship for them. Well, yeah, I assume this far in they're not even making Constitutions anymore. Yeah, but I was under the impression they made them a brand new ship. I know, right? I didn't know. Because it seemed new. It's interesting, because in my mind, I oh, that, that's really interesting, because in my mind, I always assumed that they just designated a new, a new constitution for them. Because in my mind, I was thinking, oh, well, the shipbuilders, they're just doing nothing but Excelsior class at this point. Well, you, you would be correct. That's all they did, so... And that they're also, um, you know, like, they get the ship so quickly, it's not like they sat around for a month or two. We didn't have a Star Trek Beyond time-lapse sequence. I assumed that they just grabbed another Constitution and smacked some paint on it. I also, it also gave me such a, a bad thought to think that, well, maybe that um, once they went to warp and everything sort of fell apart and they were working on the ship for weeks after that, that uh, the Excelsior crew sort of got back at the Enterprise crew for sabotaging their vessel and left a few little monkeys for Captain Scott to put back together again. But there was also a sentence in here that uh, in that last section, actually, where you were talking about, Marty, about um, uh, we had come home for the last time where Kirk says, I went back with my family. Now, that's the first time I had heard, I had, I believe I had read that Captain Kirk called his crew his family. He yeah. talks about He talks about wanting a family of his own but never really getting it. And that finally at this point in his life, I believe he's about 50-ish. And he finally goes, I went back with my family. And this is, this is as good as it's going to get for him. And you know what? You could do a lot worse in that galaxy. Oh, yeah. You could be related to the Dura sisters. I mean, ooh. All right. Shall we uh, move on to Chapter 12, gentlemen? Chapter 12. All right, Chapter 12. Kirk and the crew are on Planet 4 of System 892, watching a movie about themselves called The Final Frontier. Kirk recounts the events of the Undiscovered Country, and the Enterprise is decommissioned. Kirk retires and is preparing to christen the new Enterprise B. Well, in the first few pages of this chapter, I just have, I just have ha, 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 written into the margins of this first section of the chapter. I think this first section of the chapter is probably my favorite section in the entire book. Because when I realized what they were doing, I was just like, oh my gosh, they erased Star Trek V. How funny. Will's not too happy about that, I can tell. I'm choosing not to acknowledge this section of the chapter, so I'm moving right forward to the next part. Oh, hey. oh. I, I, One line that I liked about this chapter is, they, they made reference to cosplayers like myself. Um, when we saw the movie, we noticed that a few people in the audience seemed to be wearing homemade Starfleet uniforms. McCoy had a theory about that. Those are fans, he said, dressing up like you. Well done. Well done. Yeah, well, a balance between well done and fan service. I'm, I'm that, choosing not to say anything negative. That, that section gets a little meta. It actually reminds me of something that we're going to read 
relatively soon in the future. Yeah, it's just this the whole the, this section kind of pulled me out of it, and you know for reasons why you know we've already talked about because I like Star Trek Five. I mean, I'm not it, it's not my favorite, but I like it. But I like it. Yeah, it's interesting that they tied it back into that that kind of um, Roman Empire planet that they visited, um, so that it was you know the religious undertones of Star Trek Five were you know um, presented as being a byproduct of this planet still being under Roman rule. So, but I, I did, I did appreciate it because it allows the fans to continue the end, endless debate of whether or not Star Trek five is apocryphal or not. Okay. All right. Well, I'm going to move to the next part of the chapter. The first line after we get through that segment about them going to the movie theater, Kirk says, do you know, Uhura's 54? Wow. We're getting old. Yeah, well, yeah, because, I mean, he references in here that it's now the oldest senior officers of any ship in the fleet. And most communications officers are in their mid-twenties. Yeah. And they mentioned that they have three captains on board. Why do they need three captains? Yes. It's just kind of like, they're only there because Kirk is there. No one wanted to leave, yeah. And they all know that they they can all feel their mortality coming towards them, that they were on their last legs, their missions were not vital, they'd become a... They've become a showpiece, and they that's just part of serving with Captain Kirk now is that he is a legend in the galaxy, and he's, it's, it's, it's hard to think about with, with Kirk being towards the end of his life. and it's, it's, You can only imagine the emotions he's going through, that he doesn't have a whole lot of time left, and that he's, he's feeling his own mortality. I like that he went, and, he went to go see Ben Finney as well. Yeah, I thought that was interesting to wrap that around, too, because, as I said last week, Finney is just such a big character in this book. And, and I think that's just amazing that, you know, he he locked into one episode and made Finney kind of a thread throughout. Kind of like Marty's duffel bag. Yeah, the duffel bag. Um, I did like that Finney was in the New Zealand colony, so at least he's comfortable. Absolutely. You know, if I got incarcerated, I would want to go to that New Zealand colony. Request that New Zealand man. Yeah. As you as we move into the Star Trek VI, the undiscovered country portion of this chapter, it's um, something that stuck out to me in this chapter was uh, the treatment of Kirk as a prisoner, uh, particularly before he was put on trial with um, being trapped in darkness for so long. And, and when you think about it, Kirk had never been imprisoned for this long and throughout his entire life. He had been, you know, held captive maybe for maybe an hour or so in a different episode or two, but never for days or weeks at a time, as it seems here. And uh, the time passed, the darkness made him hallucinate. He was beginning to see glowing orbs and bubbles, and and he felt like he was already dead, and he had the urge to scream. But it, it seemed like there was no hope, and that billions were dying because of him, because he thought the war had already started. Are the orbs a DS9 reference? Hmm, that could be. Maybe. Possibly. Oh, yeah. Something else that stuck out to me in this chapter was uh, the conversation that Kirk had with Admiral Cartwright after uh, they had thwarted the assassination attempt on Kittimer. And uh, Cartwright being in the brig and um, sort of Cartwright being, you know, I have no apologies for what I did. I did what had to be done for the Federation. And that uh, there is a line in here he had seen that Kirk had seen up at first hand working with Nagura, and now his contemporaries and him and the upper ranks of Starfleet had almost missed it. 
men who'd gotten used to being the inner circle of a democracy's military, thinking they knew best and depriving the rest of us of our right to make decisions. And that Admiral Cartwright failed to see throughout all of this that he proved that through his conspiracy with the Klingons, that he proved that humans can live with Klingons. And that you hate Klingons more than anyone, and yet your conspiracy proved that when Klingons and humans have a common goal, they work together just fine. And this is coming from James Tiberius Kirk, the man who hates Klingons more than any other human alive. Yeah, and I, and I think that's also why they threw that Worf reference in there, because, you know, we have the cameo from Colonel Worf in um, the film, but I think that also directly ties to, you know, Worf being the first Klingon in Starfleet. So there's there's some good weaving, I think, in the last few pages here. You also have a very subtle hint to what's coming next, in that we needed the next generation to steep, to start keeping watch. It was time for me to go. That's clever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I also like that we had the um, uh, the Peter Kirk reference about him going into Starfleet, because that actually directly ties to um, the books that we recently covered, um, Fire with Fire, Prometheus, because we have a descendant of Peter Kirk, um, Kirk's mm-hmm. nephew, uh, serving on board the Prometheus in the, um, what is it, the 2024, uh, 2380s, I believe. So, um, you know, I think there's just some nice tie-in through there that uh, Peter Kirk goes and joins Starfleet despite all the tragedy that he experiences. Right. The Kirks keep up the tradition of being in Starfleet. They do. They do. The, in the aftermath of the Undiscovered Country section with the historian at, of course, Memory Alpha, contacting Captain Kirk to do his memoirs, you also see a little bit of what Kirk was feeling uh, in generations, that as long as he sat in the chair, he felt relevant and that uh, he regretted that he could never figure out how to break that cycle in his life, finding relevancy in something besides Starfleet, and something that he could love unconditionally, but it could offer nothing in return. And that if he, if he had survived the Enterprise-B incident, that he might have gone off and found some uncommissioned ship and sort of gotten the crew back together and, and uh, some of the other old-timers like himself and just go out and set off into the sunset and keep helping people where they could. And that he wasn't finished with the galaxy and that he wanted more. But then, who doesn't? Yes, indeed. I thought that was, a, that was an appropriate ending. It was good. And then you have a very nice actor afterward by Spock of Vulcan to yes. basically complete the story. It's nice how that starts very austere, very Vulcan, you know, lack of emotion. James T. Kirk was reported killed in action shortly after completing this manuscript, uh, and then just suddenly takes a, a quick turn into, you know, the older, more more willing to share emotion Spock, uh, a very touching ending. Uh, I am a little um, curious about the last three words uh, in this entire book because I feel like this is a direct reference to the Shatner verse. Anybody? I do. I, I do. I haven't read the Shatner verse yet, but I'm sure we're going to be covering it. Well, the the first book in the Shatner verse is is called The Return. So. I thought that was very interesting that David A. Goodman chose to acknowledge the Chatterverse because, uh, along with uh, Star Trek V: The Final Frontier, I enjoy the chat the Chatterverse. I remember reading them as they came out. I was in middle school at the time. Well, you could also Dot interpret com. that last line as um, you could also interpret that as him acknowledging that Star Trek Generations happened because there is that 
small block of fans out there that refuse to acknowledge that Star Trek Generations has a place in the Star Trek mythos, just like Star Trek V, The Final Frontier. So you could also interpret it as he will return from the Nexus one day. Yeah, that's true. That is true. But, um, oh, come on. He's only back for 10 minutes. Let's just let's just acknowledge the Shatterverse. No, well, Bob Hope came briefly back to life today. All right, well, with that, why don't we just recap the, the novel as a whole. Marty, what were your thoughts on the autobiography of James D. Kirk? Um, I like the first, the first part of the novel where we're going through his childhood and Starfleet Academy and his, uh, you know, ascension to captain. I found all of that stuff really fascinating. Um, but then we get into the later stuff where we start getting into, um, you know, the TOS episodes and the movies and all that stuff. And while I I thought it was very insightful to get kind of what was going on in his head during those moments, I still felt like I was just re-watching those episodes. Um, so for me, it was kind of just like, okay, I'm just going to glance over it and see if there's anything interesting to uh, to pull out of there. But for the most part, it was just... It was about what I expected for those sections, but you know, again, it wasn't. It was nice to get get Kirk's point of view in all those situations, which will enhance my my viewing experience next time I go to watch those episodes. Absolutely, absolutely. How about you, Will? Um, yeah, well, I think he definitely had a lot more freedom in the first half of the book, you know, because once you got into the world that we know, you know, if he changed too much around, then, you know, God help him in the wrath of the fans. Like, for instance, the fact that I'm taking a point away on my rating because he made Star Trek V into a movie uh, in the universe. So, you know, th- that is the danger of dealing with, you know, retconning something that the fans love. Now, that being said, I'm not a canonista, so I don't go crazy about things. But, um, you know, I love the freedom that he had at the beginning to give us the development years, the years we don't necessarily know about Kirk. Because I think if we're, if I'm correct, the only representation we have of Kirk as a young man is uh, Kelvin Kirk with the scene in, in um, 2009 where he's on the Corvette going off the cliff. So um, I, I just, I really, I enjoyed the first five chapters most of all in this book. Yeah, those were my favorite as well. Well, as far as um, getting more information about Captain Kirk, yes, I I do agree that the the first half of the book, like most good Broadway musicals and films, the first act is usually better than the second. However, as someone who likes reading about sort of the the final days of people's lives and uh, sort of their, their, their later years, I, I, I have to say, I sort of take the other position of I liked um, hearing about uh, the events of after the five-year mission and the films and leading up to the end of Kirk's life a little bit more than I did the early years because what I find that um, what people do in their later years is, uh, to me, is a little bit more interesting than what happens in the younger years because you have all that experience to back up what you know, but you also have... Um, the effects of age, of uh, feeling her own mortality, like in The Undiscovered Country, you begin to see that Kirk is finally starting to to understand that uh, people can be very frightened of change, himself included, and that he finally needs to get out of the way and let uh, the future take hold and the next generation take command of the situation. So I 
I, I, I love this book. I love all the chapters. I think there is, I, I don't have a problem with this book at all. Um, and I, I blame some of that on my bias uh, towards James T. Kirk being the best captain. Well, it's not just we have a problem with the book either. It's that m- more we're just looking at it from a critical standpoint. You know, I, 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 I like the book. Like, I thought it was a great book. I just oh, me too. thought there were parts of it that there were more um, in, interesting to me that I engaged with more, you know, that kind of thing. Oh, yes. Uh, no, I, I totally understand where you're coming from. All right, so, Will, um, what do you think are the, the 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 big the big meat of the novel? What 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 are we what are we chewing on on this? What are the what are the messages and the morals that we that we can pull from the novel? Well, I think you know it. Down to it, you've got a man who was. I don't want to say conflicted, but because he truly wasn't, he was always dedicated to his duty, but a man who struggled with, you know, his personal needs versus his duty. And I think with a lot of great leaders, you see that you see them, you know, have a mess of a personal life and then an illustrious career. So I I think that they did a really good job of showcasing, you know, his, um, his sense of duty and all the horrible things that happened to him because he had such a sense of duty. How about you, Marty? Um, I think it goes back to that, that quote from Captain Pike about, you know, this, this job is hard. You're going to lose a lot of people and your only friends, your only companions are going to be your, you know, the staff that is closest to you. Everyone else you're going to lose. And they will die. And, you know, and then there's the whole, like, Nothing's ever going to satisfy your craving to be out there, you know, exploring and feeling mattered and feeling needed and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, which I think also um, is interesting because there's a deviance there to um, Star Trek Beyond in the Kelvin timeline because the the Kirk that we see in that timeline has become disillusioned with, you know, yeah, exploration. Exactly. The, the vastness of space when there's nothing out there, what are you exploring? When there's no end to it, what are you exploring? So I, I think it's, you know, this Kirk never experienced that disillusionment. That's a very good point. Tyler, how about you? Well, uh, the, sort of the, the, the meat and potatoes for me is I, I actually I prepared a little bit about this. Um, as, as a reader, I, I can't help but feel mystified that Kirk was such a strong person, even from a young age, dragging a, an injured Tellarite from a fiery shuttle crash with dead soldiers inside, the, the colonist murders at Tarsus for um, exhaustive academy training and starship duty. It is no short of wonder he survived to adulthood. Um, it is, it's much easier to understand now that we've gone through this book, how our captain seemed emotionally detached from so many who came into his crossfire with noted exceptions being Spock and McCoy. But every time Kirk seemed ready to settle down with someone like Carol Marcus or Antonio or Edith Keeler, something always called back to him, uh, something that was deeper than himself, deeper than his human wants and desires. He wanted more, and he wanted to serve something uh, that his Starfleet family of alums didn't finish. He he wanted to be the best, is what I feel. He wanted to be the best captain, no matter the cost. And um, and that that's what I really take away from this. I, I that's sort of a unique 
uh, view to take on this, but I really think Kirk wanted to be the best at what he did, and and it, it sort of outweighed his desire to to have a family and to have a, a son and a wife. He just he wanted to be the truly the best starship captain that ever lived. Which is an interesting, you know, needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. It's a it's an interesting balance because it's his needs, but also his needs for the many as a leader. Yeah. Well, well put, Tyler. This is why we're so glad we had you on um, for this for this book because there's no better person to talk about Kirk. Yeah, beautifully said. I and I do believe this this book is a this book is a worthy addition to to any Trekkers collection. But I think it absolutely serves well as uh, a great introduction for any interested party to learn more about to learn more about Star Trek as well as the really the character that defined Star Trek and. And really, he now echoes through it. Now that the franchise is over five decades old, he still he, you can still feel his presence looming um, in the new incarnations. Oh, absolutely. Especially, like, just, what, two episodes ago, we were talking about Jenna Kirk in, in a in Star Trek Prometheus novel, which is at the, the most forefront of the timeline that you can get at this point. So, Yeah, absolutely. I'm... There is there is no Star Trek without Kirk. That is for certain. As far as referring the book, I also want to just say one more time because you know we've been very critical about different parts of the book and we've you know torn it apart. But I just want to reiterate that you know all that is critical. It's all positive criticism because I really did enjoy this book, and I agree with you, Tyler, in the sense that this is a really good book to recommend for somebody who may be looking to get into Star Trek, or if they're already a Star Trek fan, maybe get them into Star Trek literature, because I think this does a great job of um, bridging the television content with the literary aspect. Marty, what are your thoughts as far as like recommending this book to other people? Yeah, I definitely think it's a great book. Um, I agree with you 100% that it is a great bridge between the, um, the, the televised and film universes and the novel. Um, it could be a great um, jumpstart into the expanded universe as it will. Um, and then, you know, from here you can go and start reading original series novels or the Shatnerverse if you want to find out what happens next, you know, as you said. Or even Dayton Ward's new uh, Drastic Measures, which deals with... Um, uh... Deals with Tarsus Four in an entirely different way, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I highly recommend this book to anyone who is uh, who is interested in Star Trek literature. Although, if you weren't, you really wouldn't be listening to this podcast, would you? Yes, indeed. Fair point, fair point. So, uh, Marty, what rating would you give this book? Um, I gave this book a 3.5 out of 5. Um, I love the beginning of it. I love learning about Kirk's childhood, like I've said before. Um, I just, I just became a little detached toward the end, and that kind of affected my, my view of the book. But it is still an excellent book. Um, so, yes, three point five out of five deltas. How about you, Will? Uh, warp seven point five, and the biggest detraction is making Star Trek V: The Final Frontier into a fan servicing motion picture. That pulled me out of it right towards the end. Uh, got like you said, got a little too meta, I think. Um, but otherwise, very enjoyable. I mean, I the first the first five chapters I read in one sitting, and I I loved the first five chapters. I could have gone back and read them over again. And how about you, Tyler? 
Well, if I was on the Enterprise NX-01, I would be uh, doing Warp 4.5 out of 5 for this one. Um, the the only detraction I had is that it um, it really sort of sped up towards the end, and uh, really it sort of sped through some of the big parts of Kirk's life, um, that which obviously are covered in films and in the films and so forth. But also, I, I I wish I could have seen a little bit more of some of Kirk's motivations towards the end of his life and feeling his own mortality and so forth, because there are yeah. several years of Kirk's life that are are not covered. Um, particularly after Star Trek Two and Star Trek Three and Four, so that was that was my only detraction. I, I love the character development, especially in young Kirk's life, uh, the Academy days, uh, his yeah. family, the love interest, and so forth. So it all it all blends into the big mythos of Star Trek, and it's just it's a it's a worthy addition to anybody's Trek bookshelf, the Trek shelf, if you will. And there were no references to Harry Mudd in this book. Not one. Oh, yeah. No Harry Mudd. That's great. Probably gains a few points on that. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to do. I'm gonna bump it up to, to, to 3.7 now. There we go. All right, William, Tyler, do you think we should give this book the, the tricorder Picard seal of approval? I vote yes. Engage. I agree as well. All right. Next week on Reading Trek, we're going to begin the first of our four-part series covering the Star Trek Invasion novels. We are going to start with the first book, Star Trek First Strike by Diane Carey. Long ago, even before the days of myth and legend, our world belonged to them. Now, across space and time, comes a fury that will test every one of Starfleet's greatest heroes. The invasion begins when Captain James T. Kirk receives a desperate plea for help from the Klingon Empire. A mysterious starship has invaded Klingon space, but the worst is yet to come as Kirk discovers that his ship is the only vanguard of a vast alien fleet intent on conquering the entire Alpha Quadrant. I'm so excited for this. I read these books in middle school. It's a four-part series that ties together the four series that existed at that time. Uh, I think this is going to be really great. It's going to be our month-long series with one book each week, and we hope you'll all uh, join us on this. Now, uh, before we go, let's uh, tell everyone how they can get a hold of us uh, if they want to continue the discussion. Uh, Tyler, where can people get a hold of you? People can absolutely contact me through Twitter and Instagram at my at my tag being RT Haviger. That is how to get a hold of me, and I look forward to it. Excellent, and and you're you're attracting a lot of Trek conversations on your Twitter. You've had Anthony Rapp and Mary Chifo and Wilson Cruz talking to you, so really uh, good job staying at the forefront of um, Twitter and the fan the fan support for uh, Star Trek and the Star Trek universe on Twitter. Well, they deserve the praise and all of the dark chocolate they can eat, so they do a wonderful job. Marty, how can people get a hold of you? Uh, you can reach me on Twitter, at Time Travel Marty. You can also find me on Facebook in the unofficial Star Trek Las Vegas convention group, which is moderated by uh, Heather and Jeff of the Tricorder Transmissions and Disco Trek. Um, you can find me, find me there. How about you, Will? 
You can find me in there as well. I love uh, I love going on there and having Trek conversations, not just about Vegas, about Trek in general. There's a an incredible fan based community in there. I think we're getting close to five thousand members, so there's plenty of Trek to go around in there. You can also talk to me on Twitter at William G Conlin. That's C O N L I N, and um, if you'd like to share your thoughts on this week's episode, then we'd love to hear from you. Leave us a two-minute voicemail at 609-512-LLAP. Once again, that's 609-512-5527. Leave your name when you call, and we'll enter you into a drawing for the brand-new hardbound copy of the autobiography of John Luke Picard by David A. Goodman. Hey, uh, hey, Tyler, are you going to be joining us for the autobiography of uh, John Luke Picard? I will make it so. Uh, excellent. Looking forward to that. You can also reach out to us by sending us a tweet at ReadingTrek or by email at ReadingTrekPodcast at gmail.com. As always, a list of our upcoming selections can be found on our webpage at ReadingTrek.TheTricorderTransmissions.com. If you're looking for more Kirk coverage, be sure to check out the newly out-of-hiatus Original Mission podcast, where hosts Heather and Jeff are currently working their way through the animated series, also, be sure to check out the other amazing shows we have on the Tricorder Transmissions Podcast Network, including Disco Trek, Shore Leave, Drawing Trek, Trek Ranks, Polytreks, and the brand new Trek Profiles Podcast. And once again, I'd like to thank Tyler for joining us on this week's episode. My pleasure. Thank you so much. And with that, Captain Picard wants us to let him read in peace. I will leave you now to your book. That is all I ask. <laughs> 